Welcome to Euro Dollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Jeff Snyder is the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, and we're going to be reviewing what the fourth quarter numbers were for the United States, the GDP numbers, the second revised final version, final-ish version has been released by the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis that came out on Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. On the very same day, Jeff wrote an article reviewing the numbers. That article is called GDP and GDI lays out the perfect supply shock case and its downside. <laughs> Throw in the the haunting music right there. All right, Jeff. So that's posted at Alhambra Investments. And where shall we start? Well, I've got a quote here by you. Not Fed printed money, rather the Fed's transferring borrowed funds, taking from the treasury market and redirecting via Amazon.com to quite a few overseas producers who couldn't keep up or those who could keep up couldn't efficiently deliver what they produced. What are we referring to here? Supply shock. Very simple, right? We had the demand curve shifted to the right in the elasticity in supply, which meant suppliers couldn't meet demand, which either meant they couldn't produce enough goods or they could produce enough goods, but couldn't get them delivered to where they needed to be. And so you had this massive mismatch between demand for goods and the ability of the global uh, manufacturing and industrial marketplace to supply them. And the result was because of such a, ma a massive imbalance between the two, small e economics teaches us the only way those two things uh, reconcile is through prices. So the higher the demand went and the less ability for suppliers to meet it, the higher prices would go. We have a chart up right now showing real GDP and how much inventory contributed to that GDP, Jeff. And in our previous episode, we said, well, yes, a lot of inventory is contributing to GDP growth right now, but it depends on the context. If we were in a boom, this is exactly what we need. We're about to be selling goods and services. Fantastic. But the yield curve inversion suggests that perhaps we're not in that point in the cycle. Jeff, then we have a couple other graphs that I'd like you to explain to me. I don't care if the audience is interested in them or not, but I don't get them. The first one is real GDP, PCE, and inventory. And you've got a red bar dashed around two negative quarters. And then the most recent result is a very big positive. And that, that represents the quarterly change in real private inventories. What should we take from this graph? Well, this graph shows us the supply shock to a T. It shows us exactly what happened. What you can see with the inventory numbers is that you would, as you would expect in, in March and April of 2020, which is the first and second quarter of those years, inventory levels dropped because everybody was locked in their homes and nobody was making goods. So that was sort of the We'll shut everything down and we deplete our, our stock of goods because there was, you know, people still needed to buy some things to survive. Then the economy opened back up. We had the CARES Act, which shoveled a bunch of borrowed treasury funds into deposit into people's accounts and people spent a lot of it. And so we see on the, uh, the line, the blue line, which is personal consumption expenditures for goods adjusted for prices as our inventory inventory. It's real inventory. So these are all adjusted for prices. And you can see right away, third quarter of 2020, there's a sharp spike up in demand for goods. I mean, the purchase of goods. At the same time, inventory rose a little bit too, which meant that in that initial rebound phase, 
that suppliers were at least somewhat able to keep up with demand. It wasn't great, but you know, at least there was inventory building, rebuilding up and being restocked. Then we went through that period where the summer slowed down in 2020, leading into the end of that year, which was really on the verge of re-recession at that point. Consumer demand had fallen off and uh, a lot of things around the rest of the labor market had fallen off. And then late December 2020, early 2021, and then again in March of 2021 and April of 2021, two massive doses of Uncle Sam helicopter money. And what happens? Spending goes epically, not even a 45, I mean, it's almost like a 90 degree angle straight higher. But at the same time, this time, inventory declined in those two, those two quarters, the first and second quarter of 2021, at an absolutely enormous rate. In fact, the drop in inventory in the first half of 2021 was equal or nearly equal to the first half of 2020 when everything was shut down. And what that tells us is because not a lot of things were shut down is that the supply part of the economy, the global economy, foreigners making goods and shipping them, we just could not keep up with demand. It was the absolute supply shock, classic supply shock case where demand has just gone through the stratosphere, whereas suppliers just could not match demand. Perfect. Okay, that makes sense. And so we had three quarters where suppliers could not meet with demand enough, right? And so we had negative inventory bars there. The most recent one for the fourth quarter of 2021 is very, very positive. At the same time, we see- Yeah, and it's very, very negative. (laughs) It's a record buildup in inventory, either nominal or real terms, which shows us that suppliers, because this is a dynamic economy, they're not going to be constrained forever. All the port traffic problems and empty containers piling up in Long Beach, eventually those things are going to start to be worked out. Truckers are going to start picking up goods. Things are going to start moving on railroads again. It's not going to always be like the first half of 2021. And so eventually supply becomes more and more elastic, which means goods are going to start flowing. It maybe not completely in the same way they did before, but at least closer to whatever level of demand. And what we see from the GDP numbers, especially in the fourth quarter of 2021, as we just talked about in another episode, epic amounts of inventory have started to show up, which means that the U.S. economy, the goods economy, is starting to receive more goods than it is selling. And by the way, selling has, in nominal terms, continued to rise, but in real terms has actually started to come back down because Americans are paying more and getting less which means there are less volumes being moved, which is one reason why, despite the price illusion attached to consumer prices and the the nominal economy, inventory is piling up because sales have started to soften a little bit. At the same time, supply has become more elastic. And so it's good that we have inventory, but maybe not good that we have this much inventory. And then we start looking forward into this year and there's even more inventory coming. So it's we went from one extreme to an, possibly the other in a blink of an eye. And that's what that blue line indicates, Jeff, the, the slowdown in consumption, the real goods, total goods. Is that right? Because now it's rounded off and it's heading downwards right into that huge increase in inventory. And that's, again, that's real spending, which means in nominal terms, Americans are still paying more, 
But over the last six months or the last six months of last year, they're getting less for paying more, which starts to ring all sorts of alarm bells because that's the demand destruction possibility, which is the last thing you want to see, especially when you have an absolute flood of inventory heading your way, as well as another flood of inventory that's possibly still yet to come. Okay, we were just focusing on inventory and total goods. Now we have a very similar looking chart, but now the bars are representing the implicit price deflator for goods. Jeff, what should we take away from this chart? Exactly what we said before. Again, it's the other part of the supply shock case. So if inventory tells us the inelasticity of supply and the spending numbers tell us about the rightward shift in the demand curve, the only way that those two curves can, can be reconciled at an equilibrium is for prices to adjust. And so this other chart shows you exactly that which is the BEA's price deflator, which is their measure of aggregate or average prices across the goods economy. And you know, lo and behold, what do you find? Exactly that, when supply is inelastic and when demand shifts to the right, prices go up and, and they tend to go up by quite a lot, especially in uh, once the second and third helicopter drops were made in the early part of 2021. Ever since then, it set off, it triggered this wave of consumer price increases that we're still grappling with to this day. I notice that you do list government spending, helicopter drops on this chart. Did you forget to include quantitative easing and printing by the central bank, or was that some sort of not an accident? Are you accident? suggesting that was some uh, accidental oversight? <laughs> or was it the fact that QE just doesn't matter? And that's, that's really, see what you're that's saying. another point. I'm glad you brought that up. You're saying that's not the Federal Reserve creating a lot of money is causing these deflators. No, if, if it had been, there would have been a much close, closer, right? There would be a closer correlation between the Fed's quote unquote money printing and prices. And that's why, you know, I think it's important to point out the fourth quarter of 2020, where you see prices actually coming down a little bit. They didn't fall, but, the, you know, they decelerated sharply when the Fed didn't stop its QE, it was still going. What, what happened over the second half of 2020 was fewer transfer payments from the government, therefore fewer borrowing or th fewer buying, less buying from consumers. So the whole economy retrenched in the second half of 2020, regardless of the Fed. So what changed? in the short run, as well as the long run, because remember the Fed's been doing QE ever since 2009, that never sparked a consumer price reaction in the same way that the Feds did. So what changed last year wasn't money printing, it was this one-time temporary intervention by US federal government that led to a supply shock. Yeah, it's the, that last part, Jeff, that's the part I wanna underline. It's the supply shock brought about by all these events that led up to it not the government spending or the central bank printing, because we've seen that before for the last 15 or right. 20 years around the world, in Japan, in Europe, in the United States, never have we seen, in fact, they were struggling to get consumer prices to their target levels throughout that whole time. It wasn't until there was a supply shock, until the, the global logistical system was put through the laundromat. I know you've been writing about the laundromat lately, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about GDI, not GDP, GDI, gross domestic income. Is that what it is, Jeff? Tell us what that is. And then we're going to look at a very nice chart, couple of them. Uh, but first, tell us what GDI is. GDI is actually the other side of GDP. GDP is essentially the expenditure approach to the economy. When we buy goods, essentially, we track the amount of goods and services that are purchased by everybody in the economy, including, sadly, the government. We add that to the GDP numbers. but Anyway, 
But every time I buy something, that's income from somebody else. So there's another side of the economy. If you look at it from the perspective of sellers, that's income. So we have income from the trade of goods. We have income from the trade of services. We have income from the financial economy. We've got dividends. We've got interest payments coming in, You know, rents coming from real estate. And we also have, of course, Uncle Sam doing all sorts of uh, stipends and subsidies and all sorts of other things, too. So there's GDI is the other side, the other perspective, the other viewpoint of GDP, which is the income perspective, which uh, starts to get into some of the topics that we try to get. We want to look at. All right. First chart. It's labeled the nominal GDI problem. We've got but it's a bar chart. We've got four things on there that we're labeling compensation of employees. That makes sense. Capital consumption. Capital consumption. I know what capital investment is. Is capital consumption what you need to do to make the business run? And then net operating surplus and indirect taxes plus subsidies. So we've got five things we're looking at here. Jeff, did I get that definition about capital consumption correctly? And what should we take away from this chart? Capital consumption is really just depreciation. It's, it's sort of a fudge factor made up thing. But essentially, you know, when you buy a capital good and use it to produce more goods or even to produce services, you know, it wears down and it wears out. And so capital consumption is essentially depreciation. So we factor that into the GDI equation because it's part of sort of the income part of the overall economy. Very well. OK, so you've got an arrow there for us, Jeff. You're saying these are subsidies. What should we take away from here before we go to the next chart, which is a line chart? I think we can definitely much better understand what we want to take away there. But what about with this chart? Anything here? What we're trying to get at is how much artificiality has there been in the U.S. economy from Uncle Sam's interventions over the last couple of years? Because, you know, Uncle Sam uh, subsidizing certain business activities, whether they're PPP loans that become grants immediately, essentially you know, where do those go into the real economy and how do businesses react to what are essentially windfall payments? Because, you know, Milton Friedman's permanent income hypothesis says that, you know, businesses like consumers aren't going to react to one-time payments in the same way they do private income from actual business activity. And as we know, you know, the federal government's interventions in the real economy were absolutely enormous. So it makes sense to try to back some of that out to try to get a better sense of what the private economy, apart from or excluding those transfer payments or those subsidies, might actually look like to then better understand, for example, maybe why businesses, why there isn't a labor shortage. Maybe businesses aren't able to pay the wage that labor demands because when you look at their profit bill, their profit centers away from government windfalls, maybe they're not as good as we think they are. Next chart, line chart going back all the way before the global financial crisis, before the monetary system broke down, malfunctioned, and was never fixed. And early on, Jeff, we see that GDI and net operating surplus bear a reasonable relationship to each other, as well as the hypothetical net operating surplus minus subsidies that you draw out here for us. But then during the first euro dollar event, global financial crisis, we see them detach from each other. No problem. That makes sense. Eventually, we see net operating surplus heading back towards that line, towards GDI. But with every euro dollar event, we see a detachment. The net operating surplus doesn't grow as fast as income, of course. Then we come to the most recent post-2020 event. And now we've seen 
that the hypothetical net operating surplus minus the subsidies, that is also falling away from income. So what message are you trying to tell us with this chart? Well, first of all, what I did was backing out subsidies from the net operating surplus. You're not really supposed to do, and this is not a scientific sort of examination. It's sort of a back of the envelope estimate to try to get some sense of where the private businesses and net operating surplus is an important concept in GDI because it basically tells us all of the financial, all of the, you know, all of the profit and business incomes that net incomes that businesses generate. That's how businesses operate. They look at their bottom lines and say, is this good? Is this bad? Is this sustainable? And that's how they make their plans for the future and, and, and on the supply side, how they invest, how they hire workers, how they do all of the things that we need them to do to create a recovery. And so if their net operating surplus or the net operating surplus for the overall economy maybe isn't as good outside of the government's intervention as it seems to be, then that would explain why they seem to be you know, businesses overall seem to be reluctant to hire and pay wages at the rate the, the labor market needs in order to get us back to full employment. Because let's face it. Even though the payroll report for uh, March is going to come out tomorrow, regardless of what it says in the top line number, we're still millions and millions of jobs short for where we need to be to call it a recovery, to actually be in a recovery. And we have to, you know, we have to come up with some reason why that is. There has to be a reason why businesses aren't hiring faster than they should, than they have been, and why they aren't paying wages that, that would bring former workers and new potential workers off the sidelines and into the labor force. Those things aren't happening. And if we analyze their profit, this net operating surplus from the standpoint of, you know, let's exclude the government's intervention. Let's take out those subsidies and stipends and, and see what the private economy is generating as far as profit recovery. It looks very different. It looks like a lot. It looks as you just described, Emil, businesses aren't actually doing all that well. Yes, net operating surplus net of subsidies has gone up very quickly over the last year. But a lot of that is due to the supply shock and the effective prices. So maybe another temporary factor where businesses are saying all of these things that are re the rebound and net operating surplus, they're the equivalent of several combined windfalls, one off temporary factors that, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to go out and build new facilities. Maybe it's not a good idea to hire workers because hire workers are a great expense as well as their uh, friction. If businesses are looking at their net operating surplus, their profitability as artificial, then it would make sense why they're being so reluctant at doing the, the types of recovery processes that we need them to undertake. You often refer to the second euro dollar event, the European sovereign debt crisis of 2011 through 2012 as the final nail in the coffin of the pre-existing monetary order. And you can see it in this chart, this nominal GDI problem chart. If you draw a trend line off of the beginning of the chart out through 2006, as well as a channel line that you, you draw here for us, you've got two arrows, you see a recovery. You see, speaking of Milton Friedman, his plucking model, plucking the guitar string and it going back to its pre-existing trend where it was before. You could see how that, post-global financial crisis trend was going to get us back to the pre-global financial crisis trend. But by my rough estimate on here, in 2019, so or 2018, a little bit slow. But then we had euro dollar number two. 
And ever since then, we have been on a completely other trend, one that you sometimes call a ratcheting down effect, because now you've drawn another channel for us, the euro dollar number three channel. And that's even worse than what we saw after euro dollar two. So recovery seems to be farther and farther away. We'll never get back to where we were. We need to set a new base and grow from there, a new social order. But that's an episode for another time, Jeff. That's several episodes for another time. (laughs) Any final thoughts before we say adieu? No, I think you just hit the nail on the head with a ratchet Hmm. because that's really what it is, right? It's it's this ratcheting effect. And I think when you look at the the nominal the net operating surplus data from GDI, along with the inventory stuff, the supply shock that the clear supply shock case and the GDP numbers, I think it makes sense why businesses are behaving the way they are because they're looking at the ratchet being tightened yet again from 2020, which makes sense. Did we really think we were going to go through one of the worst recessions in history in 2020 and come out the other side with no damage whatsoever? So easy, the government was just going to spend some money. We'd all just go right back to normal. Did anybody really believe that was going to be the case? Well, I think, you know, the public has been led to believe that was going to be a realistic possibility, but it just never was. And so the ratchet effect post-2020, we're starting to see the fruits of it, I think, or at least the the results or the implications, the consequences. Thank you very much, Jeff. All right, take care, Emil.